plus the fact that all of us have a tendency to, our minds kind of wander, and my mind wanders every now and then. It doesn't wander very far. It's too weak to go very far, but it wanders some. But so I hope you'll, uh, you'll work at staying with me today because the, t- the temptation so often when it comes to things that really relate to the deep part of life, we develop an amazing capacity to, to evade them, to avoid them. Mankind's capacity for rationalization is really unlimited. So let's try to guard against that and, and, and to help point out that, that uh, propensity and that tendency in people to try to find some sort of loophole, excuse, rationalization. I read something. Well, I didn't read it. Martha read it. It uh, read it to me, and it amused me. And I thought, boy, that, that fits, and I want to use it Sunday morning because it uh, illustrates the point I'm trying to make, at least in, in the introduction of this sermon, we really need to kind of close out the idea that there are some alternatives other than the two with which we are presented in the gospel. I'll get to that in a minute. It, it was in the uh, Thursday uh, paper, Friday paper, the Ann Landers column. How many of you read Ann Landers? May I see your hand? A lot of you. Some of you read this. You probably kept it and enjoyed it, too. I'm going to read it to you. I enjoyed it when Martha read it to me. Listen to it. This lady sent Ann Landers this diet. During these tension-filled days, we're hearing a great deal about stress. What people need more than anything is a good life. I am sending on a stress diet that a friend dropped in my mailbox last week. It really lifted my spirit. I hope you will share it with your readers. And so I'm going to share it with you, my listeners, this morning. Here it is. This is the stress diet for breakfast. One half grapefruit, one slice whole wheat bread, eight ounces of skim milk. For lunch, four ounces of broiled chicken breast, one cup steamed zucchini, one Oreo cookie, one cup of herb tea. (laughs) Mid-afternoon snack, the rest of the package of Oreo cookies. One quart of Rocky Road ice cream. (laughs) One jar of hot fudge. For dinner, two loaves of garlic bread. One large pepperoni and mushroom pizza. A pitcher of beer. Three candy bars. An entire frozen cheesecake eaten directly from the freezer. Now, here are some helpful tips that this diet has to go along with it. These will help you if you're trying to avoid it, like all of us are. Tip number one, if no one sees you eat it, it has no calories. Another, if you drink a diet soda with a candy bar, they cancel each other out. Calories don't count if you eat with someone and you both eat the same amount. (laughs) Food taken for medicinal purposes does not count. This includes hot chocolate, toast, Sara Lee chocolate cake. This This is a helpful one here. If you fatten up everyone around you, you'll look thinner. 
snacks consumed in a movie do not count, as they are part of the entertainment. For example, milk duds, popcorn with butter, red licorice, and M&M's. I like this one a lot. Pieces of cookies contain no calories. The process of breaking causes a calorie leakage. And this, this last one helped me a great deal, particularly last night. Late night snacks have no calories. The reason? The refrigerator light is not strong enough for the calories to see their way into the calorie counter. Isn't that terrific? Now, when you eat lunch today, go ahead. I, I, I applaud it, too. Oh, anyway, to avoid the reality of those calories. Anyway, sometimes to avoid the reality of the fact that you and I are forced by life, by circumstances, and by God himself to come to a place of some decision-making about the direction of our life. Let's look at it for a minute this morning. The setting of the passage of Scripture I read a moment ago, the portion I read beginning with the 30th verse in the 12th chapter of Matthew, when Jesus said, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathers not with me scatters. Jesus said, Now, now look, what you're being presented with here is an opinion about me. Jesus Christ is the issue. We get, to, we get spinning off into all sorts of extraneous areas of discussion and dialogue, and they can all be helpful and they can all be beneficial, but there are times when we, under the impetus of the necessities of life as well as the precepts of the Word of God, need to come back to the realization that there is a basic, fundamental choice you and I have to make, and it has to do with Jesus Christ. We can't avoid that. We can't evade that. We can't rationalize that. He that is not with me, he said, is against me, and he that gathers not with me scatters. Therefore, he said, I say unto you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven, man, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Now, a quick word of background on this. Here, preceding this, it's very important, it's essential to an understanding of this Scripture. Immediately preceding this statement by Jesus, something happened. This statement grew out of an event, and the event was Jesus healing a person. Healing a person. That in that day they said was demon-possessed. That was the only word they had to describe anything that was abnormal behavior. They didn't know nearly as much in that day. Christ did, of course, but the, the ordinary culture did not know that much about depression or mental illness or all of the other things that can happen in this delicate machinery of the human mind and body that can throw life off track. So Jesus healed this person who was off track and he needed to get back on track. And the people who were standing around there, the religious leaders of the day, were so frustrated by Jesus' love of health and wholeness and his positive approach to people they thought were under a, the condemnation of God, it so frustrated them that they reacted violently against him, and they said, yes, what he did was a miracle, but it was a miracle that was done by the devil. Satan did it. 
And so Jesus' dialogue with them about that, he refuted their allegation by the application of logic. Of course, when you're dealing with a closed mind, logic won't have any effect upon it. Because what you're dealing with is not logic. What you're dealing with is a closed mind. And there's no man so blind as the one who will not see. And these religious leaders were so locked into legalism and into their creed and to their concept and to their predetermined attitude, they were not about to let any new light in. And so the only way to keep the light out is to accuse it of being darkness. That's what they did. They said what he does is by the power of the devil. What he is doing that looks to you as good is really evil. That was the setting of this statement that Jesus made about the unpardonable sin. He refuted it logically by asking a question. Can a house divided against itself stand? If Satan casts out Satan by Satan, well, doesn't the house, isn't the house divided and it will fall? That had no impact upon them because their minds were closed. Legalism always closes your mind. Religious legalism is the single most mind-closing fact uh, fact in our world today. It will close it against all light. And I did it right here. We'll get back to that in just a moment. So here Jesus is saying a very pertinent, salient statement in the 28th verse. He said, okay, back up, 27th verse. If by the devil or Beelzebub or Satan I cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges. But now here it is. Look at him and listen to him. He looked at them and he said, now look, fellas, if what I do, I do by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. If what I do is right, if what I do is by the eternal Holy Spirit of health and happiness and wholeness, if what I do is by God's Spirit, then the kingdom of God is confronting you and you have to deal with this light as a responsible moral agent, you're confronted with the fact of the inconsistency intellectually of your own opinion and the untenable position of your prejudice. Look at it. If the kingdom of God has come to you, then you are responsible to do something with it and to do something about it. The kingdom of God has come to you. Every one of us here today is being confronted with the king of that kingdom. Not with Buckner Fanning, not with my interpretation, but with this man. Jesus said, he that is not with me is against me. And he that gathers not with me scatters. Jesus is the issue. And then he gives a warning. And the warning is to these religious leaders of the day who had closed their minds to his light. And he said, I tell you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven, man, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Now I want to point out two or three things before I move to the application of this. First of all, it is important to notice, very important to notice, all that's being said here. The tendency in talking about the unpardonable sin is we pick out some uh, specific incident or we get off track. Keep it in context. Keep it in the, in the atmosphere in which it occurs. And there are two or three things that I want to point out that I pray will help. Number one, this was not a sentence being pronounced but a warning being given. He was not pronouncing 
a sentence upon these people. He didn't say they had committed the unpardonable sin. He said their attitude, their dangerous attitude, was symptomatic of the proximity of committing that unpardonable sin. If you have any care at all about your spiritual life, mark it down right now, you've not committed the unpardonable sin. If you have any feeling about right and wrong, good and evil, however blurred it might be, however deadened it might be through the years, if you have any care at all about your condition, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. Because the unpardonable sin means the ultimate culmination of an attitude that finally produces a spirit that cannot even tell the difference between good and evil. You see, that's what they were doing. They were attributing evil to that which was good. They'd lost the capacity to distinguish between light and darkness. So if you have any concern at all about spiritual values in yourself or others, any conscience at all, you've not committed the unpardonable sin. Another thing to note, very important to note, that this warning was given to the most religious group of people that ever lived. It was not a warning given to the flagrant sinners and the profligates of the world. It was a warning given to the religious leaders. There is nothing that will stifle your spirit, quench your life, close out the light, and the love and music like legalism. Rigid. Coercive. Judgmental. Supposing folks. My friend, that has a very appropriate cautionary word for me and for you and for us. Another word, another statement of Jesus that gets overlooked in this is what he said, that marvelous statement in the 31st verse. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men. Any any sin, any blasphemy, anything you've ever done in your life, anything you have ever said, anything you have ever thought can be forgiven. But blasphemy against that inner witness of the Spirit of God, that testimony of divine veracity within you, if you sin against that inner witness, then you have committed and unpardonable sin. Stay with me. There is a difference between a unpardonable sin and the unpardonable sin. There's a difference between the initial refusal to accept Christ, which is unpardonable, and the unpardonable sin, which is the culmination of, an, of a lifetime of resistance to the Word of God that culminates in the ability to even care about yourself. Let me quickly illustrate it. If, if Christ's Word comes to me as a 13-year-old, 16-year-old, 50-year-old, whatever age I might be, comes to me for the first time, 
and I hear the word of life. I hear Jesus saying, any sin you have committed, any blasphemy you have spoken can be forgiven you. And I hear that good word and I say, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Then I am forgiven. I am saved. My life is forever, forever different. But if I say no to the overtures of God's Word and the impressions of His Holy Spirit within me, if I say no to the invitation of Christ when He said, He that is not with me is against me, if on the first invitation I decide to say no, I am lost at that moment. I have committed a sin that is unpardonable because the basis of the pardon of that sin and all other sins is the acceptance of Christ. You see, it's the acceptance of Christ that becomes the basis for the forgiveness of the rejection of Christ. It is the acceptance of Christ as my Savior that obliterates and forgives and blots out all of the sins of yesterday and turns them not into depressing memories but into fuel for living a more moral and righteous life in the future. So it, it comes back to this crucial decision about accepting Christ. If I reject Him, I am lost. And I cannot be forgiven of the sin of rejecting Him unless I accept Him. Because my acceptance of Him becomes the basis of the forgiveness of that sin and all of my other sins as well. So what we're dealing with here is a positive or a negative attitude toward Christ. You take a negative attitude toward Him... Every attitude you take begins to take on a life of its own. It begins to get a momentum of its own. It begins to gather force on its own. No moral decision of any nature is ever made in a vacuum or stay there. It begins to set certain forces into motion. Negative forces, if I reject Christ, certain negative forces come along and I will be begin, if I make that negative decision, I will begin to pick up negative reinforcement for the confirmation of that decision. Conversely, if I make a positive decision, positive forces will come to my side and begin to work with me and for me to culminate in a more positive attitude. So you're back to negative positive, Christ or not, or Satan, life or death, yes or no. You're confronted and I'm confronted with that decision. Why do people, why do people turn down the board? Why do people say no to Christ? Why do people say no to unconditional love and forgiveness and grace? I mean, once you're a Christian and try to look at it logically, you just can't understand why anybody would want to do that. And I've thought about that. I've spent a lot of a lifetime thinking about that. And I've thought about it in, in a, as I was rereading the first chapters of the book of Genesis in the last couple of weeks. And do you remember? God said, look, Adam and Eve, this world is all yours. Everything in it is wonderful. It's all good. Now, there's a tree over here, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, and I want you to leave that alone. Just leave that alone. For your own good, leave it alone. Everything else is yours. Name all the animals. Enjoy the creation. Enjoy each other. Have a great time. But leave the tree alone. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Satan comes along. Now, listen. Now, listen. The purpose of this message today is not to try to prove to you whether or not Adam and Eve were real individual persons. Adam, the name for man, Eve, the name for woman. Whether they were actual historic persons or not, 
is insofar as the point I'm making this morning immaterial. What I believe about that and what you believe about that may be different. But listen, my friend, whether or not Adam and Eve were real or not, I don't know, but I know you're real. And I'm real. And this is a real moment. And God is real, and Christ is real, and Satan is real, and good is real, and evil is real. So don't avoid confronting the issues that face us by spinning off into a discussion about whether or not Adam and Eve were really historical people or not. It doesn't change the scenario as far as you and I are concerned one bit. Not one bit. Whether Satan came to Eve as a snake or as a spirit or whatever, I don't know. I know how he comes to me. He begins to speak back there in the ears of my mind. And he said to Eve, Look, look, Eve, you need to taste the truth. He said, No, no, God said we were not to eat that. He said, Wait. Eve, don't you know? that God knows that the day you eat at that tree, then your eyes will be opened and you will be a God. You see, what that says by inference is, and what he says to you, what he says to a lot of people is, look, God is trying to keep you in the dark. You see, God is really just an old fogey who is trying to keep you from enlightenment. Yeah. You see, he just doesn't want your eyes open. He doesn't want you to see the marvelous, wonderful reality of hell and disobedience and disease and death and pain and harm. He wants to keep your eyes closed to all of the good things that are out there. And we subtly somehow down deep inside begin to think, you know, I might be giving up a lot of things that really are lies. Yeah. But all of it destiny and its enthusiasm. I mean, sure I'm going to accept Christ someday after I've already done everything I want to do. When I'm too old to care any longer, well, then at the last minute, it's sort of a fire escape provided by the love of God. I'll ask Jesus Christ to come into my life just in case. But for now, man, I'm going to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want to be alive for the moment. I want to be enlightened. I don't want anything good to pass me by. And we buy that. He sells us that bill of goods. We're not real sure down inside that Christ is going to make life better for us. So who do we believe? Certainly. Oh, you, you can get right with God someday. Sure, everybody's going to do that. But now, eat, drink, and tomorrow, when you get ready to die, call on me. But for now, Miller time. What we do. And those negative forces, that negative decision, gathers reinforcements along the way, doesn't it? And it begins to take on a momentum of its own, and the longer that momentum goes, like a snowball going downhill, 
It gathers both mass, weight, and energy and speed. It's true in nature. It's true in life. You don't have to go to the Bible to find it illustrated, or you can find it page after page. If you and I don't use what we have, we lose it. It's a simple fact of life. If you don't use your ability, your talent, you lose it. I read about a monk who took a vow not to speak for 20 years. He kept that vow, didn't speak for 20 years, tried to speak and couldn't. He'd lost the ability. I've been told that you can take a piece of tape and put it over your eye and leave it there for a few years and take that tape away. You'll have an eye, but you won't be able to see with it. I don't know whether that's true about an eye or not. I know it's true about an arm. In 1963, I was in an automobile accident, and part of the injuries I received was a bad injury to my left side. All my ribs broken, my shoulder broken, and dislocated, and it was all torn up. And they taped that thing to me for about six weeks to let it get well. In the six weeks, they took the bandage off, the tape off, and I had an arm, but it wouldn't work. I couldn't use it at all. It was very painful to begin to use it, and I had to go through a lot of therapy to begin to get back to use of that arm. I had an arm, but it wouldn't work. God has put a muscle of faith in every heart. You have a muscle that can be exercised that will bring life to you if you use it. If you don't use it, it will atrophy, and you will hear, but you won't respond. And over a period of time, what Jesus is saying here, the warning is that over a period of time, you will ultimately lose the capacity to even care. Now, that's scary. You can ultimately lose the capacity to even hear God's voice. You say, does that mean God gives up on people? Oh, no, God never gives up on anybody. We give up to inertia and inactivity. And we do not respond. And that creates, it has a reciprocal effect upon us. It deadens us inside. The Bible says it hardens the heart. That's the biblical word. Let me use another quick illustration. It's like uh, so someone comes to your door and they knock at the door. You say, oh, I hear you out there. Sure, I, I, I want you to come in, but the house isn't fixed up. Uh, do, do you mind coming back later? Uh, but right now, I've got some other things to do. I hear you, but, uh, but you can't come in. You know the verse of Scripture, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him. Open the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. He knocks at the door. He's not going to kick it down. He'll knock and I have to open it. He'll knock at your heart's door and you have to open it. With me or against me? Yes or no? Christ or Satan? There it is again. Now, if I say no to him, he will keep on knocking. But what happens when I say no is I say, Look, 
Uh, look, I want you to stay there. I want you to stay close by because I may get into trouble. But you realize I've got to get the house straightened up first, and I've got to get rid of some things, and I've got to remodel. And then I want you in here. But right now, it, it, it's just not right. You, you come back or just stand there and knock if you want to. So he does. He stands there and he keeps on knocking. But what happens is I begin to insulate the inside of the door. Somebody knocks on your front door, you take a, some insulation, you nail it up there on the door. They'll knock the next time. You insulate some more. They knock again. You insulate some more. Stay out there. Keep knocking. I'll be there before long. But right now, I've got some things I want to do inside this house before I open the door to you to come into my life. You keep insulating the inside of that door. The day will eventually come when he can stand out there and beat on that door with a sledgehammer and you won't hear it. Not because he's not knocking, but because I have insulated the inside of the door to such an extent that I cannot hear it. The Bible teaches us, and life confirms it, the same thing happens to the human heart. You see it in literature. Shakespeare's Macbeth. The witches, evil witches. What was their motto? What was their theme song? Fair is foul, and foul is fair. Good is evil, and evil is good. When I was in college, I developed an amazing ability to learn to sleep through an alarm clock. We had an alarm clock in the little garage apartment that Browning Ware and Jack Robbins and I lived together in. It was one of those big band alarm clocks. Do any of you remember those? It wasn't an electric dude. You had to wind the thing up. And it had a little deal on the back. When you punched it in, the alarm went off. It sat there on the dresser. And we had the alarm set to go to class in the morning. And the alarm would go off. None of us wanted to get up to turn it off. So for the first few weeks, we threw shoes at it. Not to try to break the alarm. The idea being to push the alarm clock back against the wall, which was behind the dresser, to hit it just enough to make it punch in the alarm button and turn it off. And if you did that, you got 10 points. I don't know what they were for, but you got 10 points. You were able to do that without breaking the alarm. But it was one of those alarms you had to wind up to keep the bell ringing. And you knew that after a while it was going to run down. And because you knew that it was going to run down, we all developed the ability to just work that clock into our dreams. And we could sleep through the 60 seconds or so that that alarm clock went off and never let it interrupt us. The values of a higher education are marvelous. Oh, that, that, this, that really happened. We did do that. Maybe you've done that if you grew up in the day when you had to have a self-wind alarm and alarm clock. But my friend, the same thing can happen in your heart and in your life. You can begin to sleep through that warning. All it takes is a little practice. And then it becomes easy. And then it becomes deadly. Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Do you remember it? Did you read it back in the days when some of us read? Did you ever read Robert Louis Stevenson? Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Dr. Jekyll, the beloved physician, everybody in town revered him and respected him, developed this horrible capacity to become the hideous, heinous, despicable Mr. Hyde. As Dr. Jekyll, he would heal people. As Mr. Hyde, he would kill them. As Dr. Jekyll, he would help. 
And Mr. Hyde, he was hurt. And at first, it was, it was very difficult for Dr. Jekyll to become Mr. Hyde and very easy for Mr. Hyde to revert back to being Dr. Jekyll. But the longer the process went on, the easier it became for Dr. Jekyll to become Mr. Hyde and the more difficult it became for Mr. Hyde to once again get back to Dr. Jekyll. The day came when he was sitting on a park bench, Dr. Jekyll. And he looked down and he saw his hand begin to change into the hideous hand of, Dr. of Mr. Hyde. And he rushed back to his home, locked himself in his house. They went to check on good Dr. Jekyll. They found him dead. Dr. Jekyll? Mr. Hyde. Have a man think it in his heart, so is he, and so he becomes, and so he progressively becomes. He that is not with me is against me. And he that is with me gathers momentum and reinforcement and positiveness and forgiveness and love because all manner of sin and blasphemy is forgiven me. And he that is against me and stays against me, the end thereof, the Scripture says, is the way of death. Jesus is telling us, you don't have to die to be dead. You just have to keep on saying no long enough. You must have to die. That's why I urgently this morning plead with you to accept Christ as your Savior. Say yes to him. You may not want to say yes to Buckner Fanning or Trinity Baptist Church or my theology. You may want to join the Episcopal Church or the Pentecostal or the Presbyterian or whatever. I'll help you to do that. I'm not talking about that. The Bible is not talking about that. That's an important issue, but not a primary issue. The primary issue is will you accept Christ. And then, will you make some decisions about your morals, your priorities, your time, your money, your work. If he is Lord of your life, then let him be the Lord of your life, of all the aspects of your life, all relationships, all attitudes, all desires. It's choice-making time today. It always is. But in the concentrated emphasis of such a moment of worship, we confront it in a way that sometimes during our daily life we'll postpone. Don't rationalize. Don't postpone. Say yes. Yes to Christ and His will. It's a historic moment for some people here today. So I don't want any of you to move except to move toward an aisle to come in this direction to make a decision. Certainly you do nothing to distract the person 
and the most significant decision they'll ever make in all their eternity. The crowd will sing the invitation. If you happen to know it, sing. Don't open the book. I want you to pray if you don't sing. If you do sing, I want you to pray as you sing. But I'm going to be right here to greet people whom I pray will be coming to accept Christ, to make Christ the Lord of your life in regard to your church membership, if God is leading you to be a part of Trinity, from another church or from no church, that's immaterial, or to come and rededication of your life. Maybe some of you young people, God is calling you to Christian work. And you know it, down deep inside, don't say no to that. He's speaking to that muscle of commitment. Say yes. I will do your will. And I'll do it right now. I'm going to stand right here and welcome you as this church will with open arms and an open heart. Today's the day, the Bible says, and now's the time. Come on. Let's stand, pray, corral things, from upstairs, down, or wherever, come to say yes to Christ. Come.